2: Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle, stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
1: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, a year later after the killing of George Floyd. I'll speak with the head of the National Police Foundation about their Council on Policing Reforms and Race that they created after Floyd's killing. Also, Georgia Democratic Congresswoman Carolyn Bardot talks about her legislation to make sure the suburbs are included in the nation's plans for infrastructure upgrades. Another piece of the future fit is to
3: redevelop abandoned malls. And all of us know that there are these abandoned malls that have really punched holes in our inner suburbs, just holes in the community. And we need to redevelop those.
1: Those conversations in just a moment. But first this. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp put his signature to an executive order today that prohibits the state from requiring those COVID-19 vaccination passports. The governor also tweeted, quote, I do not and will not support any kind of state mandated vaccine passport. While the development of multiple safe, highly effective COVID-19 vaccines has been a scientific miracle, the decision to receive the vaccine should be left up to each individual, close quote. And speaking of vaccines today, Emory University and Children's Healthcare of Atlanta held a press conference in response to Moderna's new announcement that their COVID-19 vaccine is safe and effective for 12 to 17 year olds. Pediatric expert Dr. Andy Shane called the news exciting and said once the vaccine is approved, it will be an additional tool in fighting COVID-19.
2: Moderna will submit this uh, data to the FDA for review and if the FDA determines that uh, it's worthy, uh, they will expand the already Issued uh, emergency use authorization for adults for the Moderna vaccine to include this uh, 12 to 17 age group. Um, and then the data will, of course, be reviewed by uh, the CDC uh, Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. Uh, to provide a, to provide additional
1: uh, endorsement, Dr. Shang went on to say it's important for children and their families to get vaccinated, and Moderna's announcement provides hope, she says, for the summer and for children getting back to school. Pfizer and
2: the Moderna vaccines
1: are um, mRNA
2: vaccines. Um, they work basically in the same way, just targeting different parts of the um, viral um, protein. Um, when, we, when I think about these uh, vaccines, I sort of think about uh, Coke and Pepsi, so they're basically the same, um, have the same effect, result in the same result, have very similar um, uh, efficacies and safety profiles as we've seen in adults. What this does do, though, is offer us another opportunity to really increase the supply of vaccine, especially in this age group. Um, and uh, it's always an advantage to have more than one product that's available, um, that works well, um, and to optimize um, getting vaccinate, vaccines disseminated uh, to children. So that is actually the advantage of,
1: of having a second vaccine, uh, the opportunity to vaccinate more people. And finally, state Republican lawmaker Butch Miller is going to run for lieutenant governor. This according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Current Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan is not seeking re-election. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Today marks exactly one year in the killing of George Floyd. Caught on cell phone video, Floyd would die under the knee of then-Minnesota police officer Derek Chauvin. For more than eight minutes, George Floyd pleaded for his life and repeatedly cried out, I can't breathe. Floyd's death led to a summer of protests. Last month, Chauvin was convicted of second and third degree murder as well as second degree manslaughter and is expected to be sentenced next month. Calls for policing reform have been going on in this nation for decades. And President Joe Biden had pushed for the current proposed George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of 2020 to be passed by today. It's clear that's not going to happen. It's also clear the legislation will need more time to garner bipartisan support. But there are other initiatives aimed at providing guidance, such as the Council on Policing Reforms and Race, and that's spearheaded by the National Police Foundation. Jim Birch is the president of the foundation And he joins me now. Mr. Birch, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Rosa. It's great to be with you today on a very, very important day in our history and hopefully a day when we can all agree that we need change.
1: Well, let's begin there, because I'd like for you to personally reflect just on a year later and your hopes for whether it's any universal measures regarding policing reform, in a sense, also create something that is acceptable by everyone from the community to police departments, to prosecutors, to everyone.
0: Yeah, the, the National Police Foundation is, is a little bit different uh, of an organization that we are not like a, a local police foundation. We've, we've been around for 50 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were created in 1970 after the riots of the late 1960s. And the mission of our organization is to leverage research and science and innovation, right, innovative practices from around the country and around the world to improve policing to prevent the kinds of tensions and um, really uh, crisis situations that we find ourselves in today. And so for us, this is um, both very disheartening uh, to see where we are as a nation, where we are in terms of of policing, um, but also a moment of opportunity, a moment of change. And my hope is, our hope is that we can come together and agree that we need change and that change uh, must reach those most in need of, of change. And those are really what I'm speaking of here is the people who have been uh, disproportionately and in many cases unfairly impacted uh, by policing. And uh, we, we have to change that.
1: In your mission statement in what you just stated, when you talk about advancing policing through innovation and science, take that further for our listeners. What do you mean by that?
0: So... One good example is that right now, and in fact, in the the George Floyd uh, Justice and Policing Act, uh, there is a requirement uh, for agencies to pursue de-escalation training. Mm -hmm. So the idea behind that requirement is that agencies will train their officers in how to diffuse tense situations, right, to go from uh, a, a very tense moment to one that's less tense. That's a great concept. But up until just a few months ago, we literally had no idea if de-escalation training actually worked, if we could change the behavior of officers in any measurable way. Now, thankfully, we've recently concluded an evaluation that was done by a professor at the University of Cincinnati and some others who found that there is a a de-escalation training curriculum. It's called ICAT. Um, And it involves communications uh, and a variety of other tactics to defuse these situations. So thankfully, we have an example of de-escalation training that works. But I have to tell you, there are many uh, offerings out there for de-escalation training that we have no idea if they work. So what concerns us most and what we're focused on as an organization is how do we bring research and science to bear so that we know when we're requiring officers to go through de-escalation training that it's an effective training and that it's actually going to change behaviors. And then beyond that, is there a way that we can prevent these situations from becoming escalated in the first place, right? How do we change these interactions so that they are more respectful, more trustful, um, and have better outcomes?
1: And Mr. Birch, with all the research and training that you all involved in, if you all often get some pushback saying, look, you have to understand too, when an officer is out in the field when an officer is in a situation, how can you all really gauge that officer's instinct because everything is happening in real time and sometimes a split decision has to be made? Do you often get that type of feedback
0: yeah it's a very it's a very fair question and it's it's a common question and a common concern that we hear not only from the law enforcement community but from many others. Um, even outside of law enforcement who um, who have different experiences and they see these situations and they understand that in, in some of these cases, they are very tragic. They, they may not have been 100% avoidable. And that's the real difficulty of this. Uh, we believe in the sanctity of life. We don't want to see any life lost, no matter who it is. A police officer, a person in the community, an armed person, an unarmed person, a loss of life is a, is a thing we should all try to avoid. But there are some circumstances where that is very, very difficult to do. And it, in some cases, frankly, it's not in the officer's control. Uh, but there are many other situations, such as George Floyd, of course, the horrific, really, it was a murder. There's no other way to describe that. Mm-hmm. But there are many other instances where uh, where there are alternative responses that can be taken, alternative decisions and tactics that can create space and time to allow us to slow down these events so that we don't have to resort to deadly force.
1: As mentioned, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of 2020 President Biden was hopeful that that would be passed by this day. Uh, That is not going to happen. You've examined this legislation. What provisions, Mr. Birch, do you favor?
0: Well, we do favor de-escalation training, particularly if it's a proven curriculum, one that we know will uh, make change. Um, I think that uh, the use of no-knock warrants can have very tragic outcomes. Uh, Warrant service is one of the most dangerous things that a police officer can do. And so uh, doing them without notice, usually in the middle of the night, uh, frankly, in a country that has 40 percent of the world's um, firearms uh, within its boundaries is is a risky thing. And we think that uh, no-knock warrants may have been over relied upon or overused. Uh, We also think that chokeholds can be avoided. And so those provisions, I think, all make sense. Where we have questions um, probably is related to the question of qualified immunity. Um, the decision to uh, abolish qualified immunity or to modify it is, is an important one, but it's a difficult one because it's a very technical issue that not a lot of people understand. You know, for example, qualified immunity isn't often used as a defense in many of these situations and doesn't apply where an officer violates a clearly established constitutional right that officer is still civilly liable. Um, so there are uh, really important questions that need to be answered around qualified immunity. It's not something that we should rush into. Uh, the last piece that I'll say about the Justice and uh, Policing Act, um, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act is that there, there is one thing that we didn't see in the legislation that we think is very important. And that is we must continue to invest in the research to understand more about what's happening with policing and how our police organizations and police leaders and officers can do a better job of providing safety and security for the public.
1: If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Jim Birch, president of the National Police Foundation. And we've been talking about the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of 2020, which President Joe Biden was hopeful could be passed by today. That's not going to happen. And also we're talking about their council on policing reforms and race. I do want to hit on a couple of things because it also directs the Department of Justice to create some type of what they call uniform accreditation standards um, as it relates to training on racial profiling, implicit bias, and also it's something here in Atlanta that one of our city council members has introduced, which is the duty to intervene when another officer uses excessive force. That's a lot I threw at, at you, but let's start with the training on racial profiling and implicit bias. I imagine that is something you all would support.
0: We do, absolutely. And the idea of creating uh, uniform accreditation standards uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, there is currently existing a, a national organization that has uh, accrediting standards for law enforcement. Not all law enforcement agencies are accredited. And so we support the idea of strengthening those standards and making them available to more agencies.
1: And Mr. Birch, what about the duty of an officer to intervene when another officer uses excessive force or is engaged in some other type of misconduct as it relates to their conduct in the community? Often we hear about that blue wall, which I know you're very familiar with.
0: Yeah. Uh, it, this is probably one of the most important things that we can advance as far as reform. This idea of making it more, um, more accessible, easier, if you will, uh, or encouraging officers, changing the culture to encourage officers to come forward and to intervene um, in situations like we saw with the, in, in the death of George Floyd. You know, We saw officers standing by. Um, we know they asked questions, but they'd failed to intervene. And in fact, they not only failed to intervene, they kept others from intervening. And so um, those, I think at least two of those officers were junior officers. Um, And as we know, Derek Chauvin was a training officer. How that decision made continues to baffle me to this day. An officer with such a a checkered past uh, should never be in a a training position like that. Uh, But we need to encourage this. And we see the Baltimore City Police Department, for example, is pursuing an agency-wide effort to require officers to intervene in these situations. And then we're working with Georgetown University to expand that kind of program to dozens of agencies around the country.
1: You know, last year you all formed this Council on Policing Reforms and Race. First of all, my first question on that, Mr. Birch, who makes up this council?
0: So the council was very purposefully created uh, by the police foundation and we decided that no one in the police foundation staff, no one on our board would sit on this council. We wanted this council to be completely independent. We also wanted it to reflect important voices from our community. And so most of the members of this council are African-American members who either come from a background outside of policing, and then there's a few that are from within policing. So, for example, the, the, we have two co-chairs. One co-chair is uh, Representative Val Demings from Orlando, Florida, mm-hmm. um, an African-American woman leader, very strong leader, former police chief from, uh, from Orlando. Um, and then she is joined by uh, Professor James Foreman from Yale University, who is a former public defender and a very um, uh, outspoken leader of criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. You also have um, folks like Warren Dunn, for example, from the Atlanta area, uh, who has done a lot in this this realm in terms of providing support for communities. Um, But his mother was uh, deputy sheriff in Louisiana, of course, was 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 unfortunately killed in the line of duty. That's right. And so um, we've brought together people really from all walks of life to have hard conversations about how we can not only reform policing, but reform policing in a way that can help us address the racial disparities that we see in policing and justice outcomes. So that's really what we're after.
1: And so what has this council come back to you all with? What recommendations have they come up
0: with, if any? So the the council has had conversations in multiple areas. One area is how to address police culture, how to change policing culture professionally, how to change that so that it is more uh, reflective of the kind of policing that we wanna see, democratic policing, professional policing, uses less force, uh, involves uh, peer intervention where, where necessary. Uh, so that culture piece is a big focus. Another major focus for the council is around accountability. How do we ensure that officers uh, can be held accountable when something has done, been done wrong? Either through a disciplinary action or through a termination. Uh, we need body worn cameras to promote transparency um, and a variety of other measures related, again, to accountability. And then, last is an important conversation around really reimagining what we want policing to be in our communities. Mm-hmm. So much has been sort of put on the laps of policing uh, organizations and officers. We think about this. We send an officer out to a person who is in crisis, you know someone having a, a mental health crisis, for example. Um, the last thing we need is to have an officer respond to someone who's not violent, um, but their only tool is handcuffs or firearm. Mm-hmm. We've got to be able to send people out to these kinds of situations that have the training and the skills and the resources to be able to intervene. In a way that doesn't involve force and doesn't involve a justice system process. And so that's where the council is really focused on reimagining how policing operate in our communities.
1: I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to get to that before I let you go, because as you know, in, in calls for defunding the police and allocating funding to other wraparound services, not necessarily tied to Policing, But other areas, for example, you mentioned mental health services to handle those specific nonviolent calls. Is there's too much emphasis put on this defunding the police as opposed to just making sure there are funds for those other services, which you just talked about?
0: Yeah, we, we have real concerns about the idea of defunding, which to many people means abolishing the police. We think there's an important role for the police to play in our society. We see that not only in many cities and counties across America, but we see that internationally in other places. The police play an important role in providing security and safety for many people. Uh, But that doesn't mean that we can't reallocate resources to uh, be more effective, uh, as, as we've talked about with mental health, reallocating resources to another organization that can intervene with services and be available to respond as needed to people in crisis is an important thing that that we should support. And I don't think the police would be in disagreement with that. Most of who we talk to say that would be a great thing to have people who are in in mental health crisis or dealing with substance abuse issues, homelessness issues. These are not things that the police are necessarily uh, trained or resourced to deal with, yet they're sometimes the only people that can be called
1: finally, Mr. Birch, I've asked this question so many times to so many guests on this program in trying to define what is effective community policing. Um, some folks don't even like that term. They think it's too broad. Others say it's just too vague. But are there some some checkpoints, some assessments that you feel are are crucial when it comes to effective community policing? And if so, what are they?
0: Well it's a great question. And I think, you know, if we were to go back in time and talk to Commissioner Lee Brown, who was of course ultimately became the mayor of Houston and many call him the father of community policing, mm-hmm. yeah. My guess is Lee Brown would probably tell us today that maybe it needed a different maybe it needed a different name, or maybe we needed to do more to explain and define what community policing means. But when we go around and we talk to community members about how they define success in community policing, we know that it's different in every community, right? One community may be dealing with homelessness issues that another community is not seeing currently. But what it really comes down to is letting the community decide and giving the community a voice and deciding what success looks like for them is the most fundamental change that we can make. Because today, success is being defined by either the police chief or people in the media, uh, the sheriff or, or others, And it doesn't always match up with what the people in the community say is the most pressing problems. Mm -hmm. And so what we've been trying to do is to get uh, community members at the table with police officials to say, here's the goal that we want to see. Here's the change that we want to see happen in our community. And if this change can occur by us working together to solve this problem together, then we've been successful in terms of community policing. That's really what community policing is meant to be.
1: Jim Birch is the president of the National Police Foundation. Mr. Birch, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Rose, thank you. We appreciate it as well.
1: Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlantis Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. In March, President Biden introduced the American Jobs Plan. According to the Biden administration, this plan is an investment into the U.S. that will create millions of jobs and rebuild the country's infrastructure. The $2 trillion plan was recently cut to $1.7 trillion as a counteroffer, but the plan was rejected by Senate Republicans and still needs bipartisan support. Meanwhile, as those negotiations continue, Georgia Democratic Representative Carolyn Bardo, who represents the state's seventh congressional district, recently announced a new initiative aimed at addressing suburban infrastructure, and she calls it "Future Fit the Suburbs." The initiative outlines four proposed bills. You'll hear more about those in just a moment. I'm joined now by Congresswoman Carolyn Bardo. Welcome to the program, and thank you for taking the time. All right, good to be here, Rose. Right? Let's begin with the President's American Jobs Plan. Uh, How optimistic are you that a compromise can be worked out with the Republicans to get this passed?
3: Well, I think a lot of us on our side strongly believe that we do need to get something done here, and we are going to push forward. Uh, It is greatly desirable that we have bipartisan support on this, and One of the reasons is that uh, we need to get, it's called authorizing language. We need to create new programs. We need to add in legislative language that will tackle issues like climate change as a part of this package. And to do that, we can't use that reconciliation process that allows us to avoid the filibuster on the Senate side. So it is very desirable uh, just from a, a policy perspective that we have a bipartisan bill. And I've worked with a lot of Republicans. I've talked to a lot of people, and they really want uh, a lot of the things that are in this infrastructure bill. So I think there's a lot of space to get there. Uh, we just have more work to do um, to just bring people together around these ideas.
1: I want to focus on that budget re- reconciliation for a moment, because it was believed that you all could get that passed without the Republicans, but because it affects only, it was then it would only affect federal spending and revenue, correct? But right. now with the climate visions that changes all of that. Yeah, so we can do reconciliation,
3: but really all you can do there is build on existing programs. Um, you can add money to existing programs. You can make tax changes. Uh, so it's very limited in terms of the policy initiatives you're able to uh, really address. And. I think all of us uh, would just like to see something that's a little bit more thoughtful, that really takes our surface transportation, for instance, and brings it into the 21st century. And so, uh, you know, there there are many of us who really see the value of having a bipartisan solution uh, for many reasons.
1: Now, we know the plan includes fixing the nation's bridges and highways and upgrading transit and mobility options. Of course, there's the job creation component, affordable housing. These are just a few And Republicans have cited it's too much in one sweeping measure. They also have and are opposed to how this would be paid for, which would be through a tax hike. How do you respond to all of that?
3: Well, there's some disagreement about how big this should be. I would say the biggest issues for the Republicans is that the original proposal put in things like long-term health care and child care. Mm-hmm. And I think there's space to take up that issue in a separate piece of legislation where we deal with our human capital. Um, we need to invest in ourselves. And just as we all recognize that we need to address the congestion uh, in our on the roads in the metro area, and we need to invest in tackling climate change, uh, that we also need to invest in making sure that we have Uh, The education and the human supports to bring our country into the 21st century. Um, But I personally don't have a problem taking that up as two separate packages and thinking about those as two separate universes of policy changes. Um, that other set of policy changes around sort of the human capital is more amenable to being fit into a reconciliation-type process. And so there's a thought that, one, we can do sort of the, the physical infrastructure, the climate change issues uh, in a bipartisan. Uh, P- bill, and then maybe tackle the other if the Republicans aren't interested in that kind of investment in ourselves. But I think they are, actually. I think they would uh, do recognize that, that that need that we have for college education, for making sure we have affordable, quality child care. Um, but if we couldn't do those, we could do those through reconciliation.
1: You think you can get those 10 Senate votes?
3: I have talked with a number of senators, actually. I've been privileged to be a member of the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is a bipartisan caucus where Democrats and Republicans are coming together to try to find areas of common ground and have talked with a number of Republicans during that process. And I do think there is space there uh, to to get something done. And uh, we just saw the um, Senate uh, uh, Environment and Public Works Committee introduce just one piece of it. It's the surface transportation piece. So it's just roads and bridges. Uh, But that was introduced. It is bipartisan. Uh, It actually would uh, spend more on that area than Biden is proposing within his broader jobs package. So again, I think all the pieces are there. I think it's going to take some work to put together. But at the end of the day, you know, we are going to get something done on this.
1: And now you've introduced the Future Fit, the Suburbs Infrastructure Initiative. Why introduce this now when the president has such a a massive infrastructure proposal already? Well, what
3: we're doing is actually just finding the places in that bill where we can tweak the language, tweak what's going on to fit it to our community. So we looked, for instance, there are four pieces of legislation right now that are part of the Future Fit, and I think we're going to add one more. But an example of that is if you look at transit spending, and a lot of transit really focuses on the light rail, heavy rail type spending. But what we really need uh, right now in the Northern suburbs is things like express lane transit, which is kind of bus rapid transit, running electric buses along our express lanes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that you know, people, I live in Swanee, you know, people in my neighborhood, we can get to the downtown, we can get to Sandy Springs, we can get to Perimeter, we can get to the airport. Uh, quickly by just hopping on a bus and having it zip us along the express lanes. And uh, I and Lucy McBath um, have introduced that legislation. It has bipartisan support. We have some uh, Republican co-sponsors as well.
1: The voice you hear is Georgia Democratic Congresswoman Carolyn Bordeaux, and we're talking about her proposed legislation that would focus on infrastructure needs for the suburbs. It's called Future Fit the Suburbs. We're going to get to that in a moment, but I want to start with, let's dissect this future fit, the suburbs. First, the Infrastructure Bank Act. Tell our listeners what that's all about. So uh,
3: a lot of the projects that we're proposing, we have this express lane transit idea. We have a um, regional greenways proposal, and this is uh, something that would connect the different communities um, of, the, of the 7th District that really will go through the 6th Congressional District, the 5th Congressional District, uh, down to the 13th. Um, we have this idea of a Chattahoochee River Greenway. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this visionary idea uh, to have a bike and uh, pedestrian trail along the Chattahoochee River connecting communities. And parks, um, but that has a huge economic development impact. Um, another piece of the future fit is to uh, uh, redevelop abandoned malls, and all of us know that there are these abandoned malls that have really punched holes in our inner suburbs and just holes in the community. And we need to redevelop those and create incentives for. Uh, the private sector to come in and redevelop those properties instead of just going to the green fields at the outer edges uh, of the metro area and just building out there. We need to redevelop. And all of those involve public-private partnerships. And so the infrastructure bank idea is to create incentives for those public-private partnerships uh, to have guaranteed loans, for instance. So the private sector might Uh, You know, be willing to loan money for a toll road, but they want a little bit of help because it's a riskier proposition than a a loan for a a housing project or something like that. Um, And so the federal government can just provide that extra little incentive through the infrastructure bank uh, to bring in those uh, private dollars to make those kinds of investments. And so that's what the infrastructure bank would do. It helps create this partnership with the private sector uh,
1: to do these kinds of projects. Also, how do you ensure that those projects that you will include the community? You and I both know here in the Atlanta area, the history shows that so many projects when they come online and they make all the promises to the community. And a lot of times they don't even want to sign a community benefits sort of contract. And then we know what happens for that community. How do you ensure that that doesn't happen in the suburbs?
3: Absolutely. Well, one of the bills that I've signed on to also, uh, Asked for the Department of Transportation to convene a, uh, an advisory group that looks at these equity issues and make sure that the community is a part of those discussions. Um, Nicole of Hendrickson, who is the uh, county chair in Gwinnett, just uh, introduced an equity initiative uh, to look at ways to, to make sure that we are engaging the community, we are really responding to their needs and making sure we're not running over uh, Communities that have traditionally just been marginalized uh, as a part of these discussions. And one of the key parts of that is uh, around the Gwinnett Place Mall redevelopment process. So I think there are a number of paths there to really
1: try to address those issues as we tackle these different projects. Affordable housing is a big piece of, in all of that. And when it comes to economic development, obviously displacement is of an issue. And of course, in those, some of those areas in Gwinnett County where you have some lower income communities, particularly as it relates to the Hispanic and and Latino communities. So how do you also ensure that those folks will not be displaced? So
3: affordable housing and transportation are intimately
1: connected. And a lot of
3: it is tied to, you know, do you have, um, uh, you know, multi-use housing, housing, do you have those, um, Uh, live, work, play communities that include affordable housing in them. And I think that has got to be a real part of uh, how we are thinking about things. Obviously, transit and mobility are a huge equity issue uh, in this community. When I originally started running for Congress, I went to go talk to some doctors. And of course, a big issue for me was healthcare. And I was expecting to talk about Medicaid expansion and things like that. But actually, the first words out of their mouth was was that our patients can't reach us, (laughs) and uh, they can't get here because there's no transit and there are no no transportation alternatives for them, and uh, uh, so and that is a huge issue that I hear throughout uh, really all the communities in Gwinnett, but certainly uh, you know people who don't have access to a car. The, the transit options right now are just not sufficient at all. And we really need to make some of those investments. And it's a huge equity issue to make sure that people can get around in a way that's affordable. They can get from their homes, their community,
1: and to their jobs. The state legislature some years ago did authorize the creation of the ATL. And obviously with the 13 region uh, community here and looking at how do we best connect everyone through transit and mobility, including those lovable electric scooters, which I love to talk about. <laughs> um but how do you see this region i mean what is your vision for your region being part of the the atl and, and what are you talking about because so look we know heavy rail costs a lot of money you know that so you're focusing on light rail is this something as simple as congresswoman bardo is funding you just need funding and the ideas and it all come together
3: there, there's heavy rail there's light rail and then what I think is more appropriate in many cases for suburban areas where we just don't have the density that you have uh, downtown uh, is bus rapid transit. It's just more flexible. It's cheaper. It can get us around better. um, And we can make it feel just like a light rail experience. Um, It just, you create a fixed guide, fixed guideway. So a fixed lane that's separated from the other traffic. um, And you have, bus stops that are nice and and comfortable to be in and and just you can move people around the community very quickly with that and what's great about bus rapid transit is it can hop off of that fixed guideway and it can take you around a neighborhood and drop people off and uh, you just have a lot more options with it. So I think that's that's going to be very important uh, to invest in that. And what we are looking at, what we're talking about is increasing funding for those kinds of projects. So actually, just going back to what we talked about before, you know, a lot of money is pouring into this. All we're doing is saying, OK, we have these programs. They've always focused on uh, light rail or heavy rail. Let's have them also include bus rapid transit and innovative bus rapid transit projects. And so that's what we're doing is we're just making it a eligible uh, purpose. We're, we're building our community into this overall package.
1: Are you willing to, you mentioned there was going to be a fifth provision here. Tell me about sure, that. Sure,
3: sure. So we're working, there's another great project in the metro area it's called the Ray. And what they are doing is uh, proposing, they put solar panels in the road right of way. And what you can imagine is, you know, where do you put solar panels? And instead of putting them in green fields or other natural, you know, places that are, um, you know, pristine or forests or things like that, where it has a real environmental impact, why don't we put it in places where it's already, you know, environmentally degraded in a sense and use that extra space uh, to put solar panels there and then uh, use that to connect to charging stations at rest stops and places like that. So it also supports the deployment of electric vehicles. And um, it's just a very innovative policy and there has to be some regulatory changes, right? And some, some changes in the federal law in order to allow that to happen. And so we're looking at that as well.
1: How optimistic, I love asking politicians this question, how optimistic are you about your proposed legislation here? I'm very optimistic. And that's the answer I always get.
3: <laughs> I have, so so these bills, they, they are su- widely supported. Uh, the regional greenways, we have a great coalition of people supporting it. All, most of the, um, the the metro area uh, representatives are supporting it. Um, there's support on the Senate side for it. Um, for the express lane transit, Senator Warnock has got a proposal on the Senate side that he's he's moving on that. Um, that's something that's really appealing uh, to people on a bipartisan basis. A lot of people see the need for these bus rapid transit uh, proposals. Infrastructure bank, broad bipartisan support. Um, the the recycling of the malls uh, is one that uh, is a new idea. Um, and, but if there's, we're talking to people about it. And again, there's just a lot of excitement about it because it's a problem we all see, we all face, and we all know that we need to deal with this. And it's, it's in, Redeveloping those malls, it's environmentally prudent um, because it's you know, not developing out at the periphery. We already have all the infrastructure to support it, the uh, water, the sewer, the roads, the parking, all of that is, we got tons of infrastructure there. Um, it's often in communities that need a good shot of economic development um, and can help revitalize these communities. Um, we pair it with these uh Affordable housing type initiatives, and uh, we're healing the fabric of our community. So, that also, uh, I'm very optimistic about these because I think they're really sensible, simple, common sense solutions. And so far, we've seen a lot of bipartisan support for all of them.
1: I got to ask you did you grapple with using maybe? refurbishing malls instead of dead malls restoration act <laughs>
3: <laughs> i just uh, <laughs> uh we're, we're we're working on the wording abandoned malls <laughs> or uh, uh my my comms director likes upcycle malls which I, I which is nice um so uh yeah we're we're always looking for the right words to describe what we, we want to do and uh but mostly what we want to do is just put our thumb on the scale to give developers uh, just that extra little boost um, to, to help that that kind of piece of real estate compete with the greenfield real estate. Um, so that they have that incentive to flow in there and redevelop that bond.
1: we started this conversation talking about bipartisan support. I just want to get your thoughts overall and on what it's been like so far. It's, it's no secret that uh, it's been a little difficult for both parties to come together on on some issues. Uh, well, on many issues, what will it take Congresswoman Bardo, is this a leadership issue and through your lens on, on the Republican side and for those who are still supporters of former President Donald Trump? Yeah,
3: so it's, it's challenging, but I will say that, uh, you know, being a member of the Problem Solvers Caucus has given me a lot of hope that there are um, members on the other side who see the same problems that I do, and, uh, you know, the members of Problem Solvers, uh, they recognize climate change as a real problem. Um, most of them voted to support the, uphold the results of the election. And so, you know, they are people who, uh, you know, see what's going on. Actually, the, um, the January 6th commission uh, was supported by the Problem Solvers Caucus. And those members voted uh, in a bipartisan way, the Republicans came with us and voted to support the January 6th commission. Um, We did compromise as Democrats with them on that to make sure that it was a pure bipartisan commission. It's half Republican, half Democratic. Um, uh, But we were able to come together and solve that problem. And so I do think that is the seed of hope going forward.
1: Georgia Democratic Representative Carolyn Bardot, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Great to be here. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to send us your feedback on all the conversations and features you hear on the program. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcasts. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR, I'm Rose Scott.